I was afraid we might have another song when they wouldn't vacate the premises quickly enough. Uh, today, uh, usually when I preach, I begin with mission update. I'd love to tell you about Bolivia and also Virginia, but there's no time because it's a different kind of program today. This is actually the beginning of a sermon series on Jesus, which will reach from today until late April. It's also the conclusion of a 22-class evidences series, that is, why it is sensible to believe, how we can know that the faith is reasonable, and that concluded this weekend, actually yesterday afternoon. And so today actually does double duty. Because it's Christian evidences, I'm going to present some reasons that you may have heard before. Hopefully you'll hear them in a new way. I think they'll be new to a lot of you here as well. And this is our title, Jesus Christ, Legend, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. The question of Jesus' identity is very important. At the turning point of his ministry, he had been training his guys for two or three years. He's way up in the north of the country on a retreat, in a retreat site called uh, Caesarea Philippi. And he wants to get some feedback. He knows that people have multiple impressions of who he is. And so he asks, who do people say uh, that I am? And they replied, some say, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But the real point is, what do you say? What do you say I am? Now, people today have all kinds of ideas about who Jesus is. In that passage we were just looking at, there was a problem. Because there, Peter and the guys knew intellectually that Jesus was Christ. But their view of Christ ruled out suffering. And if you carried on and read the rest of Matthew 16, you'll see exactly why uh, Jesus has to adjust the guy's attitude. When I was brought up, it was not the Jesus who calls us to suffer. It was this Jesus, delicate, gentle, mild. I heard someone once say, it's a woman with a beard. And it's not that different. But basically, we can make Jesus into whoever we want to, especially if we don't read the Bible and we don't care about scriptural authority. You can have a Western Jesus or an Eastern Jesus. You can have Jesus who would fight, discharge a firearm in church, or, I mean, you know, you have the Che Jesus there. You have metrosexual Jesus. I mean, really, it's like God. I mean, what is God? Unless someone's helping you, God will end up looking an awful lot like you. He'll be your color, your race, he'll have your opinions. That'll be really cool. But I want to warn you, that is so far from the truth. It's not biblical. A couple thousand years of Christian tradition have filtered our concept of Jesus. A couple thousand years of mainly not following Christ to the shame of the church have given the world not only incorrect ideas about who he is, but have also been a real disincentive for following him. Even those who go to church twice a year, there's not much of a challenge. Oh, the baby Jesus. It's nice if we just keep him in that crib, in that food trough, that manger. Don't let him crawl out, because he might grow up and challenge you. Or, you know, some churches are very big into the crucifix, and just leave him up on the cross, because he's kind of defenseless there, and I'll have sentimental feelings. But don't let him rise from the dead and call me to die and rise from the dead. So today we're going to look at the options. And basically, there are only four options, four categories, but really four choices you can make about who he is. Now, I know this may look a little technical to some of you, like a flow chart, and that's basically what it is, but it's not that difficult. 
you see the top line when it says the claims of Jesus. I didn't write Jesus, I wrote claims of Jesus, because we have to, he's not here to correct us. We have to begin with what he said, or if you're a skeptic, we begin with the words in the Bible which are attributed to him. In other words, even if a skeptic thinks the church made it all up, fine. Let's begin with what it was that they made up, because obviously if it's true, they, they didn't make it up and it could be true or false and so forth. And I want to consider the first option, those things attributed to Jesus in the Gospels and elsewhere uh, are the very things that have shaped the church, they're worth studying, and they're not easy things. They're not common things. If you're a Christian, for you to say Jesus the Son of God may roll off your, your, your tongue, your lips, I mean, as easily as you would eat mashed potatoes or cornbread. It's just so, it's really, there's nothing to it. It's just words, it's soft, it's pabulum. And that's why I'm rewording some of the verses in the New Testament. We're just gonna look at John for a second. Allow me to do that, because I'm hoping it'll hit you in a different way. Jesus says, I am the light, right? I am the light of the world. That, that's not something anyone I've met has ever said. Hey, Doug, I'm the light of the world. I've always existed. I've never sinned. I'm the only way to God. I'm coming again to judge the earth. The scriptures are actually all about me. And if you want a full and abundant life, you have to follow me. I forgive sins, not just yours. I forgive your sins against other people. I have all authority. And what was that last one? Oh, yeah. If you reject me, you're not going to make it. And when you put it this way, you could say it sounds kind of harsh. Well, it's not harsh. Those are just the rough edges of reality. Those are the sharp angles of truth. And the truth could be untruth. It could be wrong. But this is definitely the claim. This is what we see Jesus saying. What if he didn't say those things? In fact, what if all this hubbub about his miracles, death and resurrection is a fiction, which more and more people believe today? And I know because I spent a lot of time in universities around the world. If those things are just made up, then Jesus would be legendary. Now, legend doesn't mean that he didn't exist. It could. But that could mean someone just fantasized the whole thing, or it could be, oh, there's a core of historical truth, but then all kinds of fanciful things were attributed to him. Either way, we have to deal with this first option. Was Jesus, is Jesus a legend? Now, we think of legend. This is the legend of Zorro. Look at that fox. Another film I liked even more, Legend. In mid-zombie genre. But I think we know the difference between legend and truth. What kind of impact does a fictional character have, typically? I put up a few there, Winnie the Pooh, which I tried to read when I was seven or eight. It was kind of hard, easier when I was nine, as I recall. The Tooth Fairy, I believed in for sure. Fox and Socks, I, locked, I liked that Dr. Seuss. My favorite book was actually not Fox and Socks. You can ask me later and I'll tell you. <laughs> but I have many lyrics uh, uh, memorized. Or how about the legend of Robin Hood? So we have an idea about what a legend is. In contrast, we can consider people who may be, in a sense, legendary in stature, but they're not legends. These are real people. And in this case, some of them are still alive. 
I mean, is there anyone who's not heard of Mahatma Gandhi, Einstein, or Van Gogh? We have a very clear picture here. All the world knows that that's Bill Gates. He gives away so much of his wealth to charity. Incredibly savvy business guy. Oh, and then you have the other fellow, um, the German uh, mathematician, physicist who worked at the patent office, who moved to, to the United States, moved to my state, actually, New Jersey, as the Nazis were rising to power. And uh, we owe him a lot for his insights. Now, you would say, is that a technical problem, or is Doug trying to be cute? <laughs> the point I'm making is, I can't pull one over you on that. Not when this is in our lifetime, not when we have accurate information. There seems to be this supposition that, you know, when the first apostle had a heart attack, everything fell apart and the vacuum was filled by people making up stories about Jesus. We don't realize that his followers lived throughout the course of the first century and they trained people who lived well into the second century. It's not easy for someone to become a legend uh, in, in, in a year or two, normally that's a process that takes centuries. So you may not even realize that Jesus is an historical character, but let me give you a little comparison. There was an emperor. He was, in fact, the second Roman emperor. After Augustus, Augustus Caesar, he was the, the, the nephew of Julius Caesar. After Augustus, you have Tiberius. Now, Tiberius died in 37. What record do we have of him? And I'm not talking about, um, yeah, if you go to Rome, you can see temples and statues. I'm talking only about uh, written evidence. We know that Tiberius was a real person because he's mentioned in 10 different sources in the first 150 years after his death. 10 sources. So it makes, makes it pretty likely we're dealing with a real person. One of those is the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, on the other hand, in the first 150 years after his death, that is from 30 to 180, is mentioned in 42 sources. Oh, some of them are Christian, that's biased. Well, everyone's biased. The non-Christian references to Jesus are not always very complimentary, but he's actually mentioned nine times in that early period, and that's not in the Bible. That is by, well, I'll give you some examples in a moment. Because what people try to do today, especially in the universities, is kind of cut Jesus down to size, to say that he's just like any other ancient god, and it's just a lot of mythology. Oh, all kinds of gods were born of virgins and crucified or resurrected. There are some little stories that slightly converge with Jesus, but the, those that exist are nearly all after the time of Christianity. Many of them have actually been affected by the Christian story as they've borrowed. I want to return we can't leave the legend option until we just get it into a little sharper definition. Okay, I think these claims are stunning. For anyone to say these things, this would be stunning. We have parents in the house. Uh, you probably walked with your kids over to the Family Learning Center or wherever they are, and hopefully you had a chance to meet the teacher and the assistant. How would you react if the teacher said, you know, your boy Johnny, he's in good hands with me. Firstly, I've never sent. Secondly, I'm the judge. I'm coming back to judge the world anyway, so I'll be on his side. Now, who would leave little Johnny with the teacher who said something like that? <laughs> this is not just someone with a little problem. Like if someone said, oh, I'm the most uh, handsome person in Georgia, you'd say, 
okay, that guy is full of himself, narcissist. But when someone's claiming to be God, it's time for the people to come with a straitjacket, right? So what if Einstein said these kinds of things? Because he's clearly a historic figure. Uh, just over a year ago, Vicky and I got to stay two blocks from his house where he lived in Berlin. He's, this guy is a real guy. What if he said, I'm the central character of the Bible. I am the light, and I travel at sea. I've always existed. I'm coming in to judge the earth. I've never sinned. And all those pictures of me smoking, they're faked. And I brush my hair every day. People, my enemies, my enemies. I have all authority on earth and in space, relatively speaking. If Einstein said that kind of stuff, I don't think he ever would have ended up having the influence he had or being smart enough to figure out relativity and things that actually have changed our lives today. So the biblical perspective is that Jesus is an historical person. This is from Peter, shortly before he died, possibly even months before he died. And he says, basically, we weren't taken for a ride. We were not sold a bill of goods. We know the difference between myth and truth, cleverly invented stories. And here he's talking about Jesus. John, the apostle who probably lived the longest, emphasizes that we saw him with our eyes, we touched him. It's not like an impression we had in our heart. We had, we had breakfast with him. We walked with him. Paul, who wrote one quarter of the New Testament documents, says, basically, if Christ didn't truly exist and die and rise, we're to be pitied more than all people doesn't say, ah, you should follow anyway because it's a great life. That would be a total lie because following Christ involves suffering. And if you're visiting today from a church where they don't preach that following Christ means you take up your cross, I want you to really think about that. And You definitely go back and finish reading Matthew 16. Jesus Christ, rooted in history, it matters that he rose from the dead. It matters that he died for our sins. So these claims... Were they just made up? Well, I mean, he lived in a very specific part of the world. You can visit the synagogue where he preached. You can go to the other Caesarea where Pontius Pilate lived and where the inscriptional evidence of Pontius Pilate was discovered when I was just two years old. In the early 90s, they found the box with the bones of the high priest who crucified Jesus. They never found Jesus' bones. There weren't any bones to leave behind. But this is a man in his mid-60s, incredibly, obscenely wealthy, only discovered in the 1990s when they were doing work on the Mount of Olives. I mean, so you have that kind of evidence. There's literary evidence. He's mentioned in the Talmud, that is the Jewish writings in the centuries after. And interestingly, the Jewish writings never say he didn't do miracles. They always admit the miracles but they tend to say it was sorcery. Because I, I think his miracles were undeniable. It's not like today. Oh, this guy, he made my headache better. No, no, no. We're talking about, you know, I, I was missing an arm. Or actually, I've been dead for the weekend. And on Monday, Jesus... It's a little different. So you can't, you can't dismiss what happened, but you can challenge the guy's motives. But he's mentioned in Roman writings. He's mentioned in Syriac writings wish I had time to read all of these, but they're in the public domain and you can find them. 
but this is, this is written uh, about 40 years after Jesus' death. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? What are they talking about? And the passage continues to talk about Jesus. Tacitus, the Roman writer, historian, this is late first century, he speaks of not only Christ, but he speaks of those who followed him who were tortured when Nero intentionally, I think, set fire to the lo lower income housing section of Rome, ended up burning up two-thirds of Rome. The Christians who said, you know, the world will end with fire, Christians got the blame. And so he, he, he doused them with uh, petrochemicals, tied them to stakes, and used them for gar garden torches, wrapped them in skins, and let dogs eat them. Uh, the Romans didn't persecute the Christians very much in the first century, but an exception would be in the time of Nero, starting in 64, and then again at the very end of the century. But these are, this is speaking of people who were crucified, who were burnt alive. These are your brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian. Another well-known Roman Empire speaks of some trouble in the capital because of some Christus. Christus is an alternate way to write Christus. So he didn't say Christ was there, but his, uh, his followers were, getting, uh, were, were pretty notorious and very famous. Sulpicius Silverus, a little bit later, but he speaks of the executions of Peter and Paul. You have the, Ju the Jewish statesman and historian Josephus. In two passages in Josephus' writing, Josephus dies around 100. One passage is about Jesus' brother James. You know, Jesus had four brothers. James was by far the most famous probably the one who wrote the letter of James in the New Testament. And there's another passage that speaks about Jesus. At this time, there lived Jesus, a man full of wisdom, if indeed one may call him a man. He was the doer of incredible things, the teacher of such as gladly received truth. He thus attracted to himself many Jews and many Gentiles. He was the Christ. On the accusation of the leading men of our people, Pilate condemned him to death upon the cross. Nevertheless, nevertheless, those who had previously loved him still remained faithful to him. On the third day, yes, he again appeared to them living, just as in addition to a thousand other marvelous things, prophets sent by God had foretold. And to the present day, the race of Christians who called themselves Christians after him has not ceased. So Christianity is still going. Now, so for some, obviously, someone to say, well, there was no Jesus. Well, what do you do with all these passages? One of the debates I had uh, back in 09 was with a Christian atheist, a New Testament professor who no longer believes in God, though he enjoys taking communion every Sunday. And he says, Jesus may well have not existed. If he did, we know zero about him. I've only known of one other intellectual on the planet who says Jesus didn't exist. And that's a German professor at the University of London. Because you see when you study German, you get all kinds of insights into the truth, right? Not really. I'm simply saying he, he existed, he's real, he's mentioned in so many things. Doesn't it make you wanna just stop and Google these while I'm speaking? <laughs> but don't do it. Don't do it. The New Testament itself speaks of Jesus. It was written in the first century, not later. And even if you burned all the New Testaments, you could reconstruct almost all of it just in quotations. You know, the earliest records of the Buddha are from the time of Christ. But the earliest records that survive today are, well, 
1300 years after the Buddha the Buddha worked around 500 BC Je Jesus they started to write down the stuff about Jesus in the first century and the earliest surviving records written records are from the second century but they started writing stuff down within 15 or 18 years of his death legend sorry this doesn't work he was not only a real person but he made some radical claims Now, this is not to say that claims are true I'm simply trying to eliminate suspects I'm trying to eliminate the legend possibility fine he said those things doesn't mean they're true but it makes much more sense of history that he he was controversial even revolutionary and it also explains the origin of the church why would so many people be willing to follow reprioritize their lives inconvenience themselves for the next 50 or 60 years many of them even be executed so we need to go to the second possibility that he did say those things and not that they're true let's say they're false oh, you know he says I'm the light of the world but he's not they're false now if those words are false again just two possibilities he didn't know they were false which would probably mean he's unhinged or he knew which would make him a liar right you say something is not true that that's a liar truth is not the moldable uh, uh, compliant uh, entity that many people in the modern generation think they think truth is facts or it's your construction of what happened there you know reality actually does have hard edges it's not just all gray let's consider this possibility those incredible claims were not only false but Jesus knew it he was a liar he's a liar he's a liar and he was even charged that in his lifetime some people said that he deceives the people others said he's a good man how about this passage also from John 7 you mean he's deceived you also the Pharisees retorted has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him well actually there was at least one at that point <laughs> we read about him in chapter 3 a guy named Nicodemus but if Jesus was lying why I mean there's always a motive right you lie because you don't want to get caught out you're hoping your teacher will give you an extension if you if you admit that you delayed until the morning of the test to start studying you know so you make up a story or you lie to exploit people for power wealth of course Jesus didn't lie for money he died with virtually nothing what were his motives and, and generally even the most radical critics very hesitant to charge Jesus with deceit now deceit would come Peter predicted this is in 2nd Peter he predicted that soon in the church just as in the Old Testament people of God soon people would lie they would pass themselves off as Christians water down the commitment 2nd Peter 3 verses 1 to 3 and they would have a big impact and they would do it for greed but Jesus isn't greedy he's not that kind of a person not at all when I was thinking about these issues some years ago actually it was in 03 
someone recommended a book to me called Feet of Clay. It was a study of religious leaders and gurus. This is not from a Christian. And that makes his words, his testimony, extra valuable. Hostile testimony, as it's called. Not because he's hostile, but it's from an outsider who, who clearly is not a Christian. He says of Jesus Christ, so far as we know, no one could have been less corrupted by power or less prone to sexual temptation. And we get no hint of his using his spiritual power to exploit others. That's Jesus. He wasn't a liar. He valued the truth so highly he would die for it. Not a liar. He's not trying to inflict his sacrificial standards of discipleship on people, make them jump through hoops for nothing. He's not cruel. And he knew there would be, for many people, hell to pay if they became Christians, if they went against their religious leaders or family. They were be kind of like changing churches, so to speak. No longer the synagogue or the temple. Now we're, we're going to that underground house church or wherever they met. Or you could say, if he's a liar, he was a fool because he certainly didn't get away with it. I don't think that works. But again, he was accused and his followers were accused of deception. One of the early rumors was that the disciples stole the body. While the Romans were guarding it, the disciples stole the body away. Of course, the problem with that is the disciples are totally demoralized. And that's clearly what's presented at the end of each of the four Gospels. So I don't think they had the courage, let alone the military might, uh, to overpower the guard. I mean, the, the boldest people, if you go to the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the people who seem to be the boldest are the female followers of Jesus. It's not those 12 guys. <laughs> that's true. It is true. But he, he dies. He rises, he ultimately ascends. This man with the highest possible regard for truth. Remember Pilate, Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? Jesus, well, God's word is truth. High regard for truth, would not lie. In fact, he went really far to actually say, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Not that's the way, that's the system. Join that religion. Because Christianity isn't a system, it's a person. He is the way. He is the life. You want to have real life and a good conscience and you want to know why you're here on the planet? Don't waste 30 or 40 years toying around with what the world offers. Check out Jesus Christ. He is the truth. He is the truth as well. So the liar option, eh, cross that out. Now we're starting to run out of options. We're starting to run out of suspects, but we're not done. Because it's possible that he said these incredible things, which were false, but he didn't know they were false. He was actually a lunatic. Now, you may think that I'm making a straw man. I'm just saying something to fill, up, fill out the time. Not at all so. There are many people who believe that they are Jesus or God. And I've met some of them. I've met a number of them. In my early days of open-air preaching in London, a guy, he actually dressed up like Moses with a long robe and a staff, and he called himself the Alpha and the Omega. And he would follow us around when we were preaching. One day I invited him to come to 
come to see me at the church office. And I said, hello, Mr. Alpha. And he just stood there. I said, okay, you're Jesus. That is right. Thus you have said. And all I did is I, I just said a few things in a few different languages. He had no idea what I was saying, thus proving he's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. I said, get out of here. <laughs> Big fat liar. In London, 10 years later, I was studying with a guy who seemed very receptive, very together-looking fellow, and he came to church. Afterwards, took him out to lunch. It was just the two of us. And he opened his, his attache case, and he wanted to show me his plans. I said, what's this? I'm reading it. And this guy was, he bought into the lie of politics, that that's how God's going to really change the world. He bought into it. And he had all this elaborate plan. He was going to become a member of parliament. He would rise up. Eventually, he would become prime minister. And then he would lead Britain to God. And I, I was pretty sure what was going on. I said, because you are God. I said that with a straight face. He said, yes, you're the only one who's seen that so far. <laughs> Needless to say, paid for the lunch. Did a little follow-up, but not too much. I'm just telling you that people are out there. But Jesus doesn't act like a crazy guy, even though he was accused of being mad. Some people like to call him raving mad. Usually when they run out of names to call people, they run out of logical arguments, you know. But was Jesus crazy? What's crazy about Jesus? He's not crazy at all. He's not a crackpot. Okay, if he were unstable, there would be some signs. See, the Bible's not a book that, that, that dresses up its major characters. All the major characters, Old Testament, New Testament, men, women, all have strengths and they have weaknesses. The Bible is not shy about pointing out the weaknesses. The weaknesses, the imbalances, the unkind words, the lapses of faith, the doubt, you'll find it. Check out Esther, check out Sarah, look at her husband Abraham. The Bible even shows you could actually make the case that God's followers are often not very nice people, especially in the Old Testament. Obviously not today. <laughs> okay. But is there any sign of instability in Jesus? Was he like afraid they're out to get me? They're out to get me? I mean, he, he knew they would get him. But this is, he's the master. He's in control. He's not psychotic. He's not a sociopath, unable to feel what other, other people feel. He's not Dexter cutting up a, body, a live body on a piece of plastic. This is a Jesus who deeply cares, who's deeply empathetic. He is consistent. See, a liar and an unstable person will forget what she or he said last time. So as they keep adding new lies, some of the old ones crumble and uh, you catch them out. You know they're lying to you. Hopefully you know they're lying to you. He's totally consistent. Well, he experiences all kinds of emotion from great joy to deep sorrow. It's not like he goes back and forth in these emotions like every five minutes. I am the light of the world. Ooh, Peter, take over, preach for me. Oh, I'm okay now, I'm back. I mean, this guy is what we say. He's so stable. He's so sane that next to him, I begin to doubt my sanity. 
I mean, really, how balanced am I compared to Jesus? No delusional thinking. Not like lunatics today who think they are God or think that they have a hotline to God, a condition called theomania. Jesus is so balanced, so we would actually say he's the perfect human. He shows men and women how to live. When I say balance, this is what I mean. Just look at a few more words. He's, he's tender, he's loving, but he's not gushy, gushy, mushy, you know, unable to think straight. He's, he's got that balance. He's zealous, but he's wise. He's not zeal without knowledge like Romans 9, Romans 10, Proverbs 19, no. Fearless, but cautious, unworldly. And, and in church, usually when we say worldly, we tend to use that in a negative sense. Like you, you've bought into the values of the world instead of God, okay. He's unworldly, but it's, he's not a party pooper. In fact, he accelerates a party in the first miracle mentioned in John's Gospel when he turns water to wine. Now let the fun begin, but not in a sinful way. And if you can't figure out the balance, then don't go to that party. But he was actually, they actually called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. I think because he liked eating and he didn't mind wine. But there's zero evidence that he drank to drunkenness or that he glutted himself to gluttony. I imagine he was probably pretty fit since he walked everywhere in the country. Not antisocial, like a lot of religious people are. Like, I've never ever been in my life, like in my first, say, 10 or 20 years as a Christian, I wasn't antisocial. I was horribly antisocial. <sighs> Self-sacrificing, but not like, look at me, I'm sacrificing. Why am I scowling? Because I'm fasting today. Urgent. He was urgent, but he was peaceful. How did he get so much done without hurrying? He was often under attack, never rattled. This is my list, okay, you make your own list. He was strong, but he wasn't harsh. He was a powerful leader, but he believed he needed God the Father to strengthen him. He prayed. So if this is the definition of sanity, you're unhinged, you're a lunatic, you're crazy, you're off, you got a neurotic, you're a psychotic, I'm hopelessly messed up. Like, all of us are in danger of being committed as having some serious issues if we use Jesus as the standard. That's okay. We do have issues, but Jesus didn't. He wasn't a weirdo lunatic. People felt comfortable with him. Uh, those on the margins of society felt comfortable with him. Not only they, children. I mean, normally, children, women, uh, rich people, poor people, felt close to him, able to open up before him. To be that way, it would be an amazing act of theatrics, or it would actually just be true who he is. But he's not a lunatic. That leaves only one possibility. I know some of you say, I want another possibility. But there are only these four. Because you start with those words, right? You know, I will judge uh, the world. I, I am the truth. You start with those words. He said them or he didn't. If he said them, they're true or they're false. If they're false, he knew they're false or he didn't know they're false. One is lying and the other is just being a bit loopy. And, oops, I got the wrong slide. And uh, 
If they're true, then he is who he said he was. I thought I had blanked out this slide. Sometimes when I teach university, I say you could do the same kind of analysis on any human leader. You check out the possibilities. And if you say, well, that's disrespectful. We don't think of our leaders that way. Well, okay, but you'll never, you're never going to learn. I'm surprised I didn't wipe that out. But I, I do have a debate next month. I'm debating an imam, one of the top debaters in the world, Shabir Ali. And I'm ready. And he said, what do you want to debate on? Because we debated once before. I said, let me give you six topics you choose. And he chose my topic, which was violence, Christianity, and Islam. I was at his website a couple days ago, yeah, on Friday. And I noticed in all of his debates, there's no debate on violence. So I think what he wants to do is kind of put the Christian guy in place, go on the record as being opposed to violence, which he is, and kind of fill out his uh, portfolio. It may, be, and I hope and pray it'll turn out a bit differently. Okay, back to Jesus. So there's really only one other possibility. If we eliminate lunatic and liar and legend, then the answer that Peter gave, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That actually has to be the truth. He is who he said he was. You cannot force someone to believe this. You can't, you, you can't do a, a thousand evidences, presentations, PowerPoints, and expect someone to change their mind if they're not willing. Because God doesn't use that kind of pressure. He doesn't give us only a little bit of reason and evidence, but he doesn't flood us with it. He gives us just enough to make our decision. And this is not a catch-22. This is not circle. When he says, if you have to choose to do God's will, and you'll find out who I am, he's not saying, okay, brainwash yourself. Jesus is who he says. Jesus is God. Okay, I believe it now. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about willingness, integrity, like this. I'm talking to an unbeliever who's kind of struggling a bit with the implications. I can, it's a little test. Okay, my friend, if it turns out this is true, Jesus is who he said he was, would you follow him the rest of your life? Would you stop prioritizing money? What if God told you just to serve the poor the rest of your life? Or, or move, move to Slovenia or Smyrna or somewhere. <laughs> Would you do it? And if the guy says, well, no, I wouldn't go that far. Even if God told you, I wouldn't do that. That person's not receptive. Not now, maybe in five years, come back later. You have to be willing. You gotta say, I, as a man or woman of integrity, will follow the truth wherever it leads, whatever the consequence. And if you do that, Jesus says, you're gonna find out. You're gonna find out who I am and who he is as Lord, not Lord Krishna, not Lord Voldemort, not Lord Vader. And there's more evidence I could give. His sinless life, his miracles, we didn't really talk about that, his resurrection, his fulfillment of prophecies, not just prophecies, but the entire scripture point to him, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, the empty tomb, and the claim that was proclaimed by the followers of Jesus, even to their death, that Jesus is Lord. What are the implications? There are three implications. And I do believe he's Lord. I kind of thought he might be when I was a kid, but I never heard anyone who convinced me. And it was in college. I was just, just past eight, my 18th birthday when I finally met some Christians who 
seemed to put their money where their mouth was. They actually said, if, you, if he's Lord and you're not committed to him, then you're not a Christian. I'd never heard that before. I always thought just a little bit of discipleship would be enough. Well, first, we need to accept his uniqueness. I often go to Buddhist countries, and I go to Buddhist temples like this one in Myanmar. This is 2,500 years old. The Buddha himself was actually there. If I'm going to follow Christ, I can't say, oh, yeah, Lord Christ and Lord Buddha and Lord Vader, or as long as I use the word Lord. If Jesus is the truth, then what he said is true. Jesus says that if we gain the whole world, we can lose our soul. We, we would, could, could not only have the destruction of the body, but also the soul. The Buddha said, you have no soul. And that's the central Buddhist teaching. You don't actually exist. There's no objective existence. And the sooner you get over it, happier you'll be. There's no way they can both be right. You can't serve two masters. You have to accept his uniqueness. He is the way, not a way. Secondly, we offer our obedience. And Jesus said, look, don't call me Lord. And don't make it worse by saying, Lord, Lord, if I'm not. You know, in Luke 6, also in Matthew 7, people call him Lord, Lord. They're not calling him Lord. They're calling him Lord, Lord. They think if they keep telling themselves he's their Lord, he will be, which is nonsense. Salvation and discipleship are connected. There's a judgment day even for Christians. Salvation is in two stages. Stage one, faith, repentance, baptism. Your sins are washed away, all your past sins. Stage two, you persevere. You stay humble. You confess your sins. And if you've been faithful with what you've given, you will have salvation at the last day. Don't we already have salvation? Yes, but you can lose it. Yes, but you need to keep living by faith. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12. An implication is that I'm not the Lord, right? People reject the Lordship for the alternative of just a comfortable church. They say stop when they're getting challenged, like Festus, whom Paul spoke to about faith. Faith meant we've got to talk about your self-control and the judgment. And Festus was quite unhappy, and he said, well, uh, Paul, uh, you know, maybe he said thank you, I don't know. When it's convenient, I'll send for you. Ah, we're not supposed to keep the Lord waiting in that way. When it's convenient, he'll send for us, not the other way around. He didn't die for nothing. There are implications. So we accept his uniqueness. We, we deal with our doubt. Even one of his own hand-picked apostles still had doubt after, and this is actually the evening that Jesus rose from the dead, of the, of the morning he rose from the dead, and that was Thomas. His story is famous. It's great, but I'm not going to use my remaining minutes for that. But he, he gives Thomas a kind of reply, understanding Thomas does have a need there, and Thomas basically just falls down and says, you are my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts that. So the implications are three. We accept his uniqueness. We deal with doubt. We offer our obedience. 
This is not about just one church is as good as another. It's not a democracy. We're not all equals. Those who say it's wrong to demand obedience to the gospel or even pressure people with a strong suggestion, no, just follow your heart, which is all sweetness and goodness and love and daisies and tulips. And after all, the secret is you are God, isn't it, Rhonda? Just follow your heart. And when it's convenient, of course. And don't become unbalanced. And don't be unpolitically correct. And, you know, if a church that makes people feel uncomfortable, they should really go out of business, have their tax-exempt status revoked. Because everyone's going to heaven, even if we don't live holy lives, especially if the blood of Jesus tricks God into thinking we're living a holy life. There is no easy way. I belong to a fitness club in Australia. Not this one, but another one. Can you believe that? <laughs> 24 hour fitness, yeah, we got it. They run those escalators day and night, 24 seven. Wow, I'm gonna get in shape, I know I am. <laughs> so much to say. But if he is the Lord, gotta obey him. Gotta be born of water and spirit. Not only born of water and spirit, well, what, if, what if you're in the desert and uh, can you be baptized? Well, you may have to wait till you get to the oasis, but yeah, probably. Humans don't live very long away from water, you know. Well, maybe you've already taken that step, but you look back. Here's another thing he said. Put your hand to the plow and look back. You're not ready. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. If anyone is here today who looked back, maybe you've been gone for a while, or you're still not sure, and you're kind of casting a glance over your shoulder, please be sober about this. If you weren't the Lord, or if the evidence was murky, maybe it's no big deal. The evidence is quite clear. And that means the decision we make is not only important, it's urgent. It's time sensitive. Time sensitive, that time may not just be the day of your death, whenever that is. It could be well before then. It could be a point where you're no longer able to respond. You're too busy or you've, you've broken your conscience permanently. Come to me, he says. All who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me discipleship. I'm gentle, I'm humble. You'll find rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. But there is a yoke, and you do carry a burden, and Jesus will give you guidance. You won't be left bewildered. He won't say, <laughs> if your car breaks down, just walk 174 kilometers up there, there's a phone for you, right? Okay. No, he'll take you all the way because he truly is the Lord of earth and the Lord of heaven. The ancient Christian confession, the baptismal confession since the beginning. What is your confession? Jesus is Lord.